are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you are interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at $2, 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. Hey, I'm here in the studio with Sir Dr. John Golson. Hello, how are you doing? Hi, Chris. I'm so glad to be here. It's really great to have you here. And so uh, I guess you came on our show this week to talk about some of the movies that you've been watching that are out on home release right now. <laughs> well, Chris, you might call them movies. I call them films. <laughs> oh, big brain in the house. I'm looking forward to hearing all the things you have to talk about on this week's special edition of Digital Noise. <laughs> <laughs> films are art and television is furniture. <laughs> Television is furniture, technically, because you have to buy it and put it in your house with the other furniture. (laughs) I sit on my television. It's very comfortable. I had mine, uh, uh, like, outlined with, like, plush. It's very very comfy. We used to have, back in the old days, children, uh, TVs used to look like furniture. They were. They had little legs and wood and... Every inlays and sometimes everything. they would have like record ca- record cabinets built into them as well, uh-huh. where you like the record player was on top of the television, and they would have. We had one that had drawers on the side that was that had pull out things designed to put bottles of liquor into. Nice. <laughs> I was like, wow, it's an all in one energy. Now that's an entertainment center. Keep, keep them warm. <laughs> Well, it wasn't refrigerated. I mean, it's liquor bottles. Yeah, but, you know. it's funny to me when you watch an older movie and there's people watching TV in their living rooms and it's like a like a 14-inch screen. Right. And I'm always just like, is that what we did? Like, that's how it's we... It's hard to that's believe. That's how we survived. And your mom was and we like... we rent movies your mom in the was living like, room and you, watch them on the head. Your mom was like, you have to sit 12 feet away from the television <laughs> because of the radiation, right? Uh-huh. And they were tiny. They were tiny little screens. And we were... We thought that was the good life. Yeah. We thought it was good. Yeah. We were wrong. That's our... That's our... Uh, had to walk to school in the snow with bread bags on our feet for shoes. I mean, seriously, put that in your heads. Try and put yourself in those dimensions and go, like, what would you do? You'd be like, this is not even worth it. I'm going to see movies in the theater. Aha! You know, that's what they should do is uh, they're trying to get people back in the theater, create some sort of conspiracy online that, like, all widescreen home TVs are emitting, like, deadly radiation. It might be. I mean, it could be. But it's still a few years away to discover. Still worth it, though. Depends on, depends on which one of these on the stack we're watching. <laughs> well, <laughs> John Golson. Yes. You and I are going to review a big stack this week. We have a very big stack and there are some very good movies in this stack. 
And there's some not so good movies in this stack. I don't have, I don't like, okay. So there were so many movies that at this point, this is a, this is like, uh, it was a marathon list. And there were so many that I'm ha- sitting here having trouble remembering all of them, but I don't have any bad vibes. There's nothing in my head that's popping up where I'm going like, oh, that was rough. You know, it's funny. It was either yesterday or today in my memories on Facebook. There was a d- old digital noise episode. I saw you post about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, did it go up? Yeah. Okay, because I it had a red thing like the post wouldn't go. Like it had a red with an exclamation it point went like up. the post wouldn't go. Yeah. And it was said, John, I subject John to one of the like the worst movies he's watched on digital noise. And the minute and it didn't say the title, and I was like, Is that famine? <laughs> it was famine. Is that famine? And then I I went to the link and looked and I was like, Yeah, it was famine. But I I, I remembered it. <laughs> That's funny. You still remember. You were, you so rarely get to the point where you're like weeks later still mad about a film. Yeah, that movie's no good. Yeah, you were really upset about that. <laughs> I was like, I mean, it was, I've seen a lot of stuff just as bad. And you were like, no. I, I said it on that episode because I remember specifically my feelings about this. It felt like a movie designed intentionally to piss you to off. To piss me off. Yeah. Like, just everything I w- might not like, just calculatedly, like, we're going to put this in front of him. That's fine. See what he does. Well, fortunately, you'll never have to watch it again. Until Arrow releases the 4K, <laughs> the 4K restoration. 4K restor- <laughs> Somebody out the there. The Ryan Nicholson box set. Clearly, someone out there thought this was a good movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know who that person is, or if they should be working in the film industry, but... Yeah. I'm just sitting on my couch here still going like, and I can't have that job. Okay, anyway, let's move on to the first movie that we're going to set. You know, we're going to start on a very, very high point, John. We're going to start with the brand new 4K edition of 1942's film that some say is the greatest movie ever made. My dad certainly did over and over again, which Mm. is Casablanca. Um, I remember when I was a kid, my dad gave me this photo book thing. They used to sell these things that were like the whole movie in stills with the text underneath each photo and stuff that you could read the movie. Yeah. So I had that of Casablanca. I had it of Alien as well. Uh, that's the first time, the the first way I saw both those films was that way. But I, I read it and I was like, oh yeah, this is pretty good, but I didn't watch it for years. It wasn't until I was like 16 or 17, I think I finally watched it. And I was like, I mean, it's okay. I like it. But it was, uh, my father and I were very close and it felt like over the years more and more like, I want to find out. I feel like by watching this more, I'll learn more about who he is. And, it, you know, it's one of those things every couple of years I go back to it. And several years back, they put out a really great Blu-ray box set of it that just came with an excess of features, both digital and physical. And I've watched that probably four times since I got it. And I found that every time I watch it, I start getting more and more attached to this film and more and more emotional about this film. Watching this again, it's been about two years since I I saw it. I just flat out cried like, I don't know, three times during this movie. And I find myself going, it really is one of the greatest movies ever made. I mean, maybe it's just you subject yourself to something enough times that you're going, I should feel this way that you eventually will. You're trying to talk me into watching Famine again. (laughs) That's what this whole thing is about. No, but I will honestly say that Casablanca went to, you know, a movie I go, yeah, it's a good movie to, oh, this is one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time within the past decade. And I would gladly rewatch it on any occasion. And this new 4K is, 
in some ways a reason to celebrate because it is a nice fix up of both the image and the, uh, uh, the audio for it. I mean, I find that a lot of my favorite 4Ks are translations of black and white films because black and white looks tremendously better in 4K. You really notice the upgrade if they spend the time with it. In other ways, a little disappointing because the previous Blu-ray set came with an entire extra disc of bonus features. Uh, like there's like a five hour documentary about the making wow. of it. That's not here. None of the, like there's some bonus features here to be sure, but that it's not as good a set as that. And I'm, sh- I wouldn't be surprised to see this get re-released in some sort of fancy. Oh, it's Christmas time type set. Maybe like a double feature with famine on the, on the other <laughs> oh disc. God, we're going to keep coming back to this. <laughs> I brought up his trauma and now he's like, you're not addressing my trauma. No, I have to control my trauma. It's the only <laughs> way I can get over it. Uh, you know, Casablanca is okay. Oh boy. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I'm, I'm where you were probably a few years ago then. Cause I think it's, I think it's really good. It misses me for some reason in a way that other old films don't. Um, not to like compare it to Citizen Kane. I'm just bringing it up in the fact that it's like, I don't, I'm not, I don't rankle against classic movies. There are a lot of them that I really love. I, I like Citizen Kane is one that I really love and I'm not pitting it against it or anything like that. No. I just want to provide a frame of reference that it's not just like, it was old and dusty. I didn't like it. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't quite connect with me for some reason and I don't know why. I think it's really good. I love the cast. I think their writing's sharp. Like the dialogue's really sharp. I'm, I'm just saying things that have been echoed over time, like through the decades, but just on a personal level, I'm not there with it. Um, I still am just like, it leaves, there's something about it that I just, there's something about it that just leaves me a little bit cold. And I wish, you know, I wish it, it's like, do you like the, uh, the Maltese Falcon better? Uh, I've only seen that once. People always compare them because, well, I will say this. I had seen Casablanca exactly one time, and I've seen Maltese Falcon one time. I remember way more about Casablanca from the one viewing than I remember from Maltese Falcon. Yeah. Because I don't remember – I honestly don't remember anything from Maltese Falcon. Like, not really. Okay. And I, rem- I remembered – I remembered, like, most of Casablanca despite it being, like, 12 years or so since I'd seen it. Yeah, because it's an incredible movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's for whatever reason, the the – emotional connection I have where you really fall in love with a movie or, or a movie really means something to you. I'm missing that aspect. I don't know why. Um, I feel like a little bit like I'm at like, a, it doesn't feel like a criticism. It doesn't feel like a, uh, it doesn't feel like I'm sitting here like telling you my opinion. What it feels like to me is therapy. Like I'm making an admittance of a fault. <laughs> like, I'm like, looking at you as if you've made mittens to like, fall. <laughs> I'm not, I don't feel like I'm being a movie critic when I say, uh, it fails to connect with me. I feel like I'm going, Chris, help me. Like, <laughs> why, why does it fail to connect with me? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. Uh, tell me in your own words uh, about your relationship with your mother. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, she was, uh, she was a spy. Um, no, I thought we were going to go Blade Runner with this. Okay. No, never mind. Now, Michael Curtis directed this, um, a Hungarian director, uh, who like in many people in that period were in fact European imports coming over to Hollywood because that's where the money was. Um, he was already well known in Europe when Warner Brothers had him come over and he did quite a few films that got a lot of, uh, very big notice. Um, he directed 102 films during his Hollywood career alone. Um, yeah, including a lot of them being very, 
big manly man movies. Like he was really into adventure stuff like the adventures of Robin Hood and Captain Blood. Another one of my father's favorite movies. He, he loved that stuff. The sea wolf. Um, uh, but you know, stuff also like white Christmas, we're no angels, uh, Yankee doodle dandy. Uh, this is the army. So like it was, it was very broad, his material and Casablanca is no question. Very, very broad film. Um, it was supposed to be, it's definitely a populist entertainment film, but there's something about it that is so, it's under the surface, but just barely of its approachability and its universality, I feel like, except to John Golson, that, <laughs> that there's just, there's something about it that I would compare to something like Star Wars. We're like, this shouldn't be as good as it is. Well, but it, it is. It's evident in its instant status, right? Because it, it's one of those, the, I think the only, I mean, really, there's two films in my lifetime that I could point to that have that. And one of them is Star Wars and the other one is Raiders of the Lost Ark, mm-hmm. where the minute they came out, they were just, it was stamped. instant. Like it was just like, this is iconic. This is a classic that is not just a good movie, but this is something that represents movies. And if you see a visual representation of a movie, it's going to be Humphrey Bogart as Rick in his tuxedo. And you're going to go, oh, that's, that's what movies are. And that seemed to happen almost instantly. Um, and I, I think that that is the proof of exactly what you're talking about here. I had a disagreement with a 20 something year old employee <laughs> at the theater I work in who's a young actress, mm-hmm. young ingenue who's l- looking to be big. And she's actually been on television shows. Like she's been on a Disney show before. Yeah. I don't want to share her name because I don't want to call her out here, but, um, she was, I was, she was making the argument that actors are absolutely the most important part of films. Like no question. They're the biggest part. I'm like, <laughs> you know, that's like, uh, I used to think that my brain was the most incredible organ in the human body. And then I thought, oh, well, look what's telling me that. I'm like, mm-hmm. come on. And I went, no, I wildly disagree with that. I mean, if you had to pick one, it would be the director, but I think it's different based on every film. And she's like, really, what film can you think of that it's not the actors? I'm like, uh, tons but the first thing that came to my mind was casablanca she's like really i'm like yes i know the actors are very very iconic no question but it's somewhere between the director and the script and the weirdly the lighting department that makes casablanca i think as iconic as it is maybe you would say the casting director even more so than the actual cast because humphrey bogart was he's a studio guy he's a guy who comes in does his, reads his part, leaves, and just plays Humphrey Bogart most of the time. And mm-hmm. he was, he was the, that type of guy. You're like, oh yeah, he's a character actor. He's that, uh, he's an iconic as hell character actor. But I could have seen other people in his part. Ingrid Bergman is barely in the mer- movie, right? You're like, yeah. you could have been a lot of people, but the way she's shot in the scenes that she's in is what it is. There's just a, a, absolute beauty to the way they're shooting her and the way the light reflects off her face and her tears. I think for me, my love for this comes mainly because my love of uh, noble sacrifice in, in, in films is this is the ultimate noble sacrifice film where you don't have to deal with a tragic death, but it's more than that. It's a, someone's decision to make something that's not going to be their death, but it's not just, Something they always wanted, they give up, but it also 
is a move towards a life changing, not just for them, for other people move forward for the positive. I'm like, this is great. I just feel all warm and fuzzy at the end of this movie. And a Nazi dies. I mean, what else do you want? <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's interesting that this is based on a play. I don't know that I've ever in my life heard of anyone staging the play. I never have either. Yeah, I was wondering about that myself as uh, I was watching this, uh, the the extra features on here. Going, you ever see like a local theater, like, you know, oh, we're doing Casablanca right now. Well, everybody know? comes to Rick's. Yeah. Oh, everybody comes to, well, even that, you know. But I think it was, uh, I don't know, I think it was a pretty different from Casablanca in a lot of ways, but I don't really know. Interestingly, uh, I guess they um, they never found a Broadway producer, so they sold it to Warner Brothers. So it hadn't actually been produced in a big theater. Mm. So it was kind of like, yeah, but you would think that after the movie came out, they'd be like, oh, shit, let's it'd go back per- to Broadway. It'd be like Fiddler on the Roof, where perennial... perennial- uh, local theaters, you know, thing where it's just like, because of the name recognition and the name value, it's why, it's why people do Little Shop of Horrors all the time. It's a financially successful adaptation, musical adaptation of Pretty Woman making the rounds right now, right? <laughs> yeah. And no one in all these decades has gone, I should go and add some songs to Casablanca. <laughs> it's already got two songs baked into it. Yeah. Let's, Get back with that and, and, and do that. I'm just saying. I'm just saying it's out there. Anyway, so this new 4K does come with a lot of extra features, even if it's not as good as the other ones. Get introduction by Lauren Bacall, uh, two different audio commentaries, one with Roger Ebert, who is always delightful to listen to, uh, and one with, uh, film historian Rudy Belmer. Uh, there's Warner Night at the Movies, uh, a bunch of pre-show historical pieces that the type of thing that would have played before like movies at that point, newsreel, vaudeville stuff, that type of thing. There's a series of in-depth features about the film uh, behind the story, which uh, from the show, great performances, Bacall on Bogart, Michael Curtis, the greatest director you never heard of Casablanca unlikely classic. You must remember this a tribute to Casablanca. And as time code goes by, the children remember there's additional footage, which is only a minute 40 of no audio uh, deleted scenes, f- uh, about five minutes of outtakes, uh, a, <laughs> 18 and a half minute TV remake of Casablanca called Who Holds Tomorrow. I didn't watch it and uh, I never have, but I feel always who's in it. I, I, I'm always like, maybe I should. I don't know. I don't have it listed here, but I'm like, mm. and then Mary Melody's take on the film Carrot Blanca. I remember that. Yeah, that's on here. Uh, and there's some vintage audio only extras of scoring stage, uh, sessions, uh, radio broadcasts from Lady Esther Screen Guild, uh, Vox Pop radio broadcast, and then trailers. So again, if you're the ultimate, like, I need everything, you're only buying this for the disc of the 4K upgrade, which is, like I said, quite good. Um, but. <sighs> That, that previous Blu-ray set is really just a marvel to behold. There's so much great bonus stuff on there. Let us move on. That's not a going with the carrot joke to another film that for me was a first time watch, but I will definitely be revisiting. I had never even heard of Jack Cardiff's girl on a motorcycle, uh, at all. I knew, of course, its main stars, Alain Dillon and Marianne Faithful, two of the most beautiful people in the world in 1968 when this came out. Like, the very definition of style. I wasn't born then. <sighs> okay, but so I've read. <laughs> so I've read. I wasn't born then either, no matter what Wright says on the other digital noises. Um, 
Jack Cardiff, uh, French director, uh, I'm sorry, British director, uh, this movie was kind of buried when it came out because it came out in 19, it was supposed to come out in 1968 Cannes Film Festival and it was, the festival ended up being canceled because of all the riots and everything going on in France in 1968. Uh, okay. This is like everyone talks about how cool the wild ones are with, um, Marlon Brando. And mm-hmm. I was like, this is just campy and dumb. I'm not a big, f- I'm like, this is fine. I'm Brando's great in it, but this is not grabbing me with coolness this is the movie that does that for me where i'm like oh this is grabbing me with coolness this is the cool like it feels like david lynch definitely watched this when he thought about every female protagonist he's ever had (laughs) i just and there's no plot really it's just (laughs) there's a girl on a motorcycle there's a girl on a motorcycle she likes two guys yeah she just she it's about her getting on her motorcycle and driving it uh across the border uh to germany to visit her lover while her husband is still asleep and her sort of like thinking back about the decision she's made but without really much in the way of like dramatic recreations it's sort of really you know she's narrating it in her head while we see scenes from it and then it goes back to the motorcycle and and then a lot of her taking her clothes off and 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 making having making the sex mm-hmm. isn't that what the kids say doing the mommy and daddy dance doing the mommy the and daddy dance i don't know man like this is the type of movie that normally would have bored the crap out of me but if, if someone tell me about this i'd be like yeah yeah i'm not interested but i thought this was great uh, uh yeah okay Did you? <laughs> all um, right here we go uh you know i i liked it but for maybe different reasons than you did and it almost like i have to tread lightly here because you you said you thought it was really cool i did i actually found it really dorky <laughs> which is what made me enjoy my time watching it you know I me that's the, part of why i thought it was cool it all is the dorky. shots of her with this dead-eyed open mouth smile while she's like, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. I, it's a, i wish you guys I, this is the one time i've ever wished this was a visual show so you so, could see what i'm doing <laughs> but she has like this empty-headed open mouth look when she's driving around on she the motorcycle. it's true that is was always amusing to me i, I never got going during it Girl, you're on a motorcycle. Close your mouth. Uh-huh. <laughs> you're going to get bugs in there. Well, you can't catch any bugs in there when you're on an obvious green screen, yeah. just sitting still, and a director's telling you, act like you're on a motorcycle. Oh, not always. And your response is to open your mouth wide and go, only sometimes, only sometimes. There are a lot, there are a lot of, there's a lot of motorcycle that's clearly on a rig, but it is moving for mm-hmm. sure through the country, you know? Uh, there's also a lot of, um, uh, psychedelic freak out, baby. Yeah. I There's love, the, I love like, that shit. <laughs> like chromatic aberration video effects where like the trees are yellow and the sky is purple and they, they change to green and hot pink and yeah. all that stuff. And it was all stuff. Of a very specific time and place. Okay, I'm going to um, call you on this if you say you love that stuff when we review the Dunwich Horror on your next show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know it's in there, too. Um, yeah, this was, uh, I was, I was, um, pretty amused by most, by most of this movie. I, it was, uh, it was very, like, What's it's not mod like mod is the wrong word because no. it's not like it's not mod enough to be mod, but it's it captures something from that 
time. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's about like free love. It feels like this inspired a movement, but I'm not sure what that movement is. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it feels like the type of movie people saw it and then rioted afterwards (laughs) and then had a bunch of sex. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I just thought it was, I, it was a little too cornball for me to really get behind. And it's not in overall tone, not in specifics. I found it a little too, a little too, uh, a little too swinging (laughs) sixties. I love the swinging sixties stuff when it's right. The European swinging sixties stuff is the stuff I tend to like. The only American swinging sixties stuff I like is when it's having fun at its expense, like mm-hmm. in like Flynn stuff yeah. like that, where you're like, okay, they're, they're winking at it and, and, and nudging you in the ribs while still kind of celebrating it. Well, at the there's same a time. weird thing that happens. And we, we got into it when we watched salt and pepper, salt and pepper versus this movie, which is that it's, is it, does it feel authentic? And yeah. like, this feels authentic. Oh like, yeah. Is very. It, to me, it's misguided, but it's authentic. Versus the American stuff where it's like you literally have old men trying to act like they're hip to the scene cat. And it's like there's an inauthenticity to like the stuff that you saw that tried to capture swing in 60s at the same time with the same kind of stuff. Well, then, yeah, because a lot of that stuff that the other films are talking about feels like after the fact. Yeah. This feels like, oh, this is the swinging 60s. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, it's got Lou Reed soundtrack going on and stuff. I mean, this feels like if the Velvet Underground was a movie. <laughs> I and I it was it kind of took time over the course of time before I kind of like thought by the kind of by the time I sort of wrote it off because at the beginning I honestly thought like it was going to be maybe more substantial than it was um and then somewhere you know when you get past the halfway point and it's still sort of the same stuff I think I kind of went oh it's it's probably not going to be much more than this going on and then it it wasn't and some it's of the not. stuff actually got sillier in the last it's third. It's very simplistic. So. My only issue with the film at all is that I hate that it has this very telegraphed, like, okay, we know it's going to end something like this because it felt like there's a, like there is a necessity for, for, uh, film to put out a sort of ethical morality over this sort of, I guess, perceived immorality of this character. Yeah. Uh, who's not doing anything wrong other than being free and feminist and living her own life. Um, it's annoying where you're like, you see it coming and then it happens. You're like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I kind of hate that. I wish they were like, the director would go back and be like, you know what? We're cutting that out. In the end, she just rides off into the sunset and everything's fine. Uh, this is from Kino Lorber. There's a commentary from the 2012 Blu-ray release from the director here and a uh, brand new one from film historian and critic Alexandra Hella Nicholas. Um, both of those are ones where they don't talk for long periods of time. Then suddenly they do. And you're like, ah, I forgot. I had the commentary track on. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know if I'll ever rewatch this alone again, but it's a film I would show other people, especially if we were stoned. Mm-hmm. This is a great, like, let's get high and watch a movie movie. <laughs> I, I'm just saying for me, all right, we're going to move on to a film that is widely regarded as a classic, Cooley High, that Criterion has now put out. Uh, 1975 coming-of-age comedy drama that some people described as the Black American Graffiti, although there has been, because of the nature of this film and the fact that it was kind of groundbreaking and that it changed 
uh, black cinema in a lot of ways, which previously had been very macho and very sort of exploitation, mm. as it will, as you will, um, into something trying to point at something else, more hopeful, perhaps. I, I don't know, John. I really, really, really wanted to like this due to all the positive press over the years over it. I, I, I only recently even heard of it. Um, you know, I'm a white guy. What are you going to do? Uh, but I'm like, yeah, let's see this. This sounds cool. It's got that, uh, it's, it's, it was the thing that inspired, uh, what's happening, right? Which was originally just supposed to be called Cooley High and yeah. there was some rights issue. And then they were like, oh, you got to change shit. Became that show, which became a whole series of shows. Um, it's okay. I, I think a lot of it is there's so much lingo that I didn't know what it meant. I had to pause it repeatedly to go, I don't know what those characters just, I mean, I always watch everything with subtitles on, not because I'm deaf. I just like it. I like it that way. I like yeah. to be able to say, oh, that's what they actually said and, and, and be clear. Um, I didn't know what they were talking about half the time. And the rest of the time, I'm like, so people really went into like, restaurants in the back corner and played craps and that was sounded cool there's just i couldn't identify with this film i think what it is i couldn't really identify with american graffiti either although i love the soundtrack to that one i don't know this is like a very low budget movie no question um michael schultz directed this film uh i don't know man I wanted to like it. And I was talking with a, a guy I work with who's like, oh man, yeah, that's such a classic. I've seen it so many times. I'm like, really? <laughs> like, I, I, everybody talks about it like it's so great. And I'm going, I thought it was dull outside of the soundtrack. I like it. All right. Damn it. You should. You should be the guy to defend it. Like, um, you should tell people why, why this is good, because I couldn't really get into it. I like it. I, you know, the thing that dissatisfies me when I watch Cooley High is the shift into melodrama in the back half. Um, I think that I... It's I, very telegraphed. I like the front half stuff of everybody just hanging out and trying to trying to get laid. Um, <laughs> I think that the, the just the day in the life stuff is... It's like little little vignette day in the life stuff. I mean, if you've seen Dazed and Confused, you've seen American Graffiti, you've seen movies like that. It's that in type that, of thing. It's in that neighborhood. It's a bunch of friends, uh, you know, and it cuts between the friends and what they're doing and 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 hanging out, and then it gets um, nineteen sixty four Chicago. Yeah, a bunch of high school kids. Yeah, yeah, and then in the in the in the back half, it gets it it takes a turn turn towards the melodramatic, and that's where. It's so, I don't like the sweet and sour aspect of it. I, I like just, I like the hanging out. Um, I'm not a big fan of the second half of the movie. Mm. Um, but overall, I really, I, I do. I like the movie. Um, I like the cast. I like spending time with those characters. Um, yeah, it was, you know, no. it's, I, I don't like, it's, it's still kind of new to me. I, it's not a movie I grew up with or saw a whole bunch. I, I first saw it maybe, two three years ago and then rewatched it here recently um but yeah i like it it was a film once i found out what like all right so i get the criterion monthly email and they're like you get these movies we're putting out this month you get one and so i do my research pretty hard <laughs> you know always like oh shit i gotta only pick one i better choose right uh because it's criterion and well, this, they let this those was, other people go in the closet and take whatever they want 
What? What other people? They like famous people. <laughs> oh, well, sure. Yeah, the famous people. I'm not a famous oh. person. Yeah, sorry. Um, I, this seemed like the natural choice, and I'm glad I finally, I saw it because it feels like a film that if, that you want to be ready to have say something, to say something about if people bring it up in comparison or discussion with, right? You're like, you should have seen this by now. I should have seen this by now. Um, the, 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 the writer, Eric Monty, is the one who went on and actually co-created all the spinoff sitcoms of this. And honestly, I remember seeing, I love Garrett Morris, a big early Saturday Night Live fan. Mm-hmm. I was like, ooh, he's like top credited and he's in it for like no. five minutes. Yeah, no, it's mostly <laughs> Glenn, what's his name? Glenn Turman and yeah. uh, the guy who played Freddie Washington on, yeah. on, uh, and Glenn Turman, Mr. X from the X Files. Oh, is, did he play? Yeah, I know him from, uh, was it different? What uh, was it from a different world? Did he was in a different world? He said he's in a ton of stuff. Yeah, no, you'll see him. You'll be like, oh yeah, of course I know him. He was on Peyton Pla- Peyton Place was a big one. And then a uh, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs, uh, who was Freddie Boom Boom Washington and Welcome Back Cotter. Yeah. You know, of course I knew him because that show I liked. Um, I got a I got a ding criterion just a little bit here because I own the HD stream on Vudu, and because I didn't want to get the disc out, I started it there, and I went, oh, this quality's a little rough. Let me get the Criterion disc out because I bet the disc looks way better. It's, Chris, the disc looked identical to the HD stream it's that not, already existed. It's not. That's one of my biggest problems with this. I was like, it felt like they did very little fix up on this. Yeah. It, it looks rough. It, and I understand that maybe it's just from a really rough master, but it, uh, it, there was, you know, a lot of times when you watch a new 4K release of a film or something, or even a Blu ray release of a film, you go, Wow, this looks like it could have come out yesterday, right? This <laughs> definitely doesn't give you that sensation no. at all. No, I, and I expected raw. that. I expected that video to look better because Criterion, I think, usually does a better job. And I don't. Again, maybe it's source. Who knows? But um, it did not look significantly different from the previous HD release. And there's only one standard audio track on here as well. Uh, they didn't put a lot of work into this. Maybe it's racism. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not heard accusing. It first, I'm not accusing Criterion of racism. I was being silly. There is a new interview with Michael Schultz, director, remembering Cooley High, where he talks about how it comes to exist and some of the themes in it. Um, there's the Cooley High story, a short program, but the making of it produced for Turner Classic Movies in 2012. Academy tribute, which is a panel discussion with Michael Schultz, Gloria Schultz, actors Lawrence Hilton Jacobs, Garrett Morris, Jackie Taylor, and other cast members that was filmed at the Academy of Motion Picture Art and Sciences Samuel Goldwyn Theater in Los Angeles in 2019, hosted by Robert Townsend, which is really cool, who has also his first ever film appearance in this, who is like, blink and you'll miss him mm-hmm. type of thing. And then a leaflet. But there's not actually a huge amount of bonus features here either. It literally, for Criterion, I felt like it got, for a film that's considered as highly as it is by many, not me, but many, I felt like it got a little bit of a short shrift. Yeah. Let's move on to something a little more modern about a little more old, which is a new release of 52577, like a date. Uh, a coming of age film written and directed by Patrick Reed Johnson, uh, who, <laughs> did Baby's Day Out and Spaced Invaders, <laughs> the uh, but Genesis he did do Angus. Code. I like Angus. I don't know if I ever saw it. That's Angus. about the the overweight kid at school. Um, who loves James Vanderbeek is in that. Yeah, yeah. It's about a kid. He's like you ever you ever. We knew these growing up, but they're, they're rarely represented in movies. Which is like 
the super strong as an ox nerd, yeah, yeah. like the outcast kid who's like bigger than all the other kids and yeah. physically who's all, stronger who's than all the in other films kids. In films in the eighties, was usually the bully. Yeah, yeah. In this, he's like he's he's the put upon one. Like he's he's the outcast. Uh, anyways, that's Angus. Angus is good. Yeah, it's an early early nineties comedy. So mid nineties comedy. According to things I've read along the way, I'm, this film has been was in development forever. It was in production forever. It was finished. And took forever to get any kind of release to theaters, which of which I think two theaters it came out in. And then it was like forever until it finally got a home release. This is really the release of this film now on Blu-ray. You're like, I, I've yeah. been hearing about this forever that originally it was marketed as the true story of Gary Kurtz's relationship to the Star Wars films. It's not even faintly that. That is not what this is at all. Like, that's when I first heard about this. It's, like, oh, it's Gary Kurtz's point no, of view of Star Wars. Like, no, it's, it's not Johnson at all. making a biopic about himself. Now, Gary Kurtz did produce this along with uh, Fred Ruse, but it's John Francis Daly, who you probably know best from uh, Freaks and Geeks, playing the lead character on there. One of the lead characters, Sam Weir, the youngest kid in the show. Now all sort of grown up. Uh, and he lives in Illinois and he's super excited uh, about film and he wants to be a filmmaker. It's very we like it's treading the same ground as the Fablemans. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, yeah. After I saw the Fablemans after I watched this and I was like, Oh, it's like a different version of the same movie. <laughs> uh, he, he's making his own short films and doing his thing and incorporating all his family into the stuff that he's doing. And it, then he, his mother encourages him to like pursue it and he ends up going out to Hollywood and being lucky enough to be right there at the exact right moment for them to go. This is charming. This teenage kid here. You know what? We got a rough cut of this new movie coming out that we're going to do called Star Wars. When are you coming in? No one's seen it yet. When are you coming to let us know what you think? And it cements his path to filmmaking greatness. Yeah, which never happened. Because <laughs> um, hey, isn't it actually the story of Patrick Reed Johnson? Yeah, it's it's his. He made a biopic about himself. Yeah, and and it's. I mean, like I said, it's a lot like the Fablemans, just low budget, more psychotronic. Um, <laughs> Chris, why why was the movie edited like this? Why was it like? It's weird. It's. There's like a scene where uh, he's in the kitchen and they're having breakfast and like someone's eating waffles and it keeps like doing quick cross cuts between the plates of waffles and the people in the room. Yeah. It's edited like it, it I could not figure out why it was so poorly edited. It's it's like amateur hour. It's so bad. I agree. That that weed whacker editing is something you have to put up with for what the nearly two and a half hours that this movie runs? It's so long. It's so long. My biggest complaint about this movie is I think that the, speaking of editing, and it's all a matter of editing, I think that there is a sweet movie in here about a guy who really loves movies. I don't think that some of the events that Johnson himself thinks are greatly significant and important to the narrative are. And I think he's too close to the material to know what works and what doesn't work. And so it's all in there. And because it's all in there, none of it works. And it's like, there needed to be a more judicious hand at going, 
what story are you trying to tell? Yeah. And let's only leave in the elements that cement that story. Let's only leave in the things that help sell this particular story that you want. Oh, you mean an editor? An editor. <laughs> not someone who just cross-cuts waffles with human beings in a breakfast scene. <laughs> like, someone who makes a decision about storytelling in the edit, not just, let's cut to the waffles again. That's the one that stands out in my mind. That was the Because that was the first time in the movie that I kind of went... Why are they doing that? And then they did it about a dozen more times over the course of the film where I just inexplicable. The editing's absolutely inexplicable. So there's there's w- tangents and storylines that go nowhere, have no bearing on the overall narrative at all. Because I think the ultimate point is sort of like he he got to live his dreams, right? Like the point is sort of like yeah. he had a dream, then he found himself in the position where People took him seriously, and then he got to live his dream. Yeah, there should and be a maybe five. There's like a little bit of a romantic. Should be a five twenty five ninety seven where he's like, ah, I fucked up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just I don't. You know, it's kind of funny because I watched Clerks three last month as well. So I saw two movies from two different filmmakers that were completely up their own ass about themselves. Yeah, in really like weird ways. <laughs> this was a weird one, and. I was, I, you know, occasionally I'll see something that it's not like I'm looking for an, like, I'm not trying to form my own opinion about it, but I'm sort of like, what did people even think about this? And this is one where I went and looked online because I was just like, what, what are people even saying Apparently about Apparently people said positive things about it more than not, at least in the, uh, the critic reviews. And I'm like, I think y'all are being too kind to a film because it's, it's, poking your sensitive spots in a way that like, yeah, this is what you felt too, but it's a kind of a crappy movie. He also shows up in the comment sections of negative reviews of this movie. Oh no. Um, so just, you know, with throwing that out there for digital points, <laughs> website, yeah. but uh, he seems like a name searcher. Yeah. Um, I don't know how you can direct baby's day out and want to read bad reviews. Like, I would think that you'd be seasoned enough after making a couple, like, Space Invaders for a long time, uh, to be honest, when I was a younger man, I called it the worst movie I'd ever seen. It's so terrible. I saw it in a theater and was flummoxed, and (laughs) and I must have been, like, 15, and at the age 15, I was like, that's the worst thing. You're already ready to know. Yeah, that's the worst thing I've ever seen. And you were right. It was really, really, (laughs) really bad. Baby's Day Out is really bad. It's so bad. I like Angus. What can Again, I say? I haven't even heard of Angus before um, now, but. But, uh, but my deal is if you've weathered the storm, if you've <laughs> already been there and you've already directed for studios and you're, you're good, like you're gravy, you've got it. You, you've directed for studios, you've made your movies and you've weathered bad reviews before. Why are you doing this to yourself, man? Like, why are you going and commenting in negative reviews and you of had, your own stuff? Also, he had all the time in the world to go and recut this film. Yeah. Like, literally, it's been years since this film was completed years and years and years only now getting release dude no one has advised you i uh, what you're saying about the comments makes me think lots of people said dude this it could be a good movie you just need to cut it way down you need yeah. to cut a lot of this stuff out and i like the charming stuff where he's like using the sort of models and things like representing what is going on with like stuff from 2001 and close encounters and stuff type imagery like that's fun and cool. That's part of the things that gives it this movie. It's sort of heart that the part that works. And 
I'm not the world's biggest fan of uh, of lead actor here. I, I, he is that guy who's dorky to a point where I want to punch him, you know, yeah. <laughs> and never really quite gotten past that for me. I'm like, oh, dude, I appreciate the fact that you, we like the same things, but get away from me. And he really feels like that in this movie. He feels like one of those guys like, yeah, yeah, we like all the same stuff. Let me ask you what you think about these movies. I'm like, get away from me. You're well, scaring the last, me. The last 30 minutes of the movie is mostly dedicated to him. This is, sounds like I'm making it up, but the last probably 30 to 40 minutes of the movie are dedicated to him talking to his friends about a movie that hasn't been released yet, which is Star Wars. Yeah. Trying to talk up Star Wars, explain Star Wars, get them excited for Star Wars. And it's like... You could have lost half of that. And and not only could you have lost it, in all those scenes, it's they're kind of weird to even leave in narratively because his his enthusiasm for it is not infectious. No, like his friends are sort of just like we okay, we don't know what Star Wars is, we're not interested. Like yeah. we realize that you want to you keep talking about it, and then when it comes out, he wants to see it over and over, <laughs> and none of them want to as well. And it, it it's sort of like how is this benefiting the story? Like how is your friend? How are your friends? Not wanting to see Star Wars, like in what way does that make the story better? Or, or are you trying to tell us that you were the first? Cause I've heard this thing that apparently, I don't know if it was in the promotion of the movie that it's like the story of the world's first Star Wars fan. <laughs> and I don't know if that was the pitch and that's why that stuff was left. I mean, in. it makes sense. That's a good pitch. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, it's sad that we think it's a good pitch, but it is also weird. Is the love story aspect of this, which is so awkward, doesn't work at all to a point that's like, wow, doesn't work. Yeah. (laughs) Like, there's some weird decisions that it felt like he's trying to be poignant, and it's just, you, you, I know you've made a film before, but it doesn't feel like it watching this. (laughs) Yeah, it's rough. It's Um, a rough ride. The one thing I'll point out that I just, the startling realization that his mom, Colleen Camp, Uh was Yvette, the super hot maid in Clue. Yeah. Yeah. She's the reason I, she's the reason I'll never forgive Entourage. Cause the one episode I watched of Entourage was about, um, one of the guys from Entourage getting hooked up with Colleen Camp and being so grossed out. And I was just like, don't you dare, don't you dare be grossed out by Colin Camp, you little punk. And the whole, I sat with my arms crossed. It's like the only episode I ever watched. I was just like, what the, what is this shit that somebody dares to deign, uh, <laughs> Colin Camp's good name by being like, oh no, dude, she's gross. I would never, I was like, no. Yeah. No. You failed me, Andrush. Yes, Entourage. <laughs> Entourage didn't take long to fail us, I'm just saying. It's the only one I ever saw, and I yeah. have never forgiven it for shitting on Colin Camp. Uh, there's audio commentary with uh, writer-director Patrick Reed Johnson and moderator Seth Gavin. Uh, there's 2013 Fantasia Film Festival Q&A with the director, cast and crew photo gallery, locations photo gallery, miniatures photo gallery. <sighs> yeah, I, I mean, you're gonna watch this. I know that I know half our audience is gonna be like, no, I have to watch this film, are going to. And I bet you anything, most of them are going to feel the same way or much angrier upon yeah. watching it. Be like, sorry, man, we tried to tell you this is going to, you're, this sounds like it's perfect for you and you're probably going to hate it because it's not very good. I didn't hate it, but it's not very good. But you know what is really good, John? 
Casablanca. Yeah, well, we already did that one. <laughs> Let's do it again. Let's do another classic. I've grown, I've grown to like it. Now, just in the time <laughs> between that. You're getting done talking about this one. <laughs> you're like, you know what? You're I've right. come around on it. Casablanca is a great movie. But, uh, what's great, which is now getting a 4K release from Lionsgate is Reservoir Dogs. Uh, this, I had handed this to John going like, all right, this is for your next show. And he goes, dude, I watch this every year. I don't need to, I don't need to watch this new one. We can, I can talk about it now. I, I saw it in the fall. Yeah. I've, I've probably seen it every year since it's released. <laughs> it's a fantastic, fantastic movie. It is a movie that I'm not sure would get a pass today for its Quentin Tarantino race dialogue. Mm-hmm. I mean, more so than any of his other films. This is the one you're like, Oh, wow. Says stuff that you're like, mm. and it's not black characters or, and white characters talking to each other saying it. it's just white characters saying yeah. it. You're like, Wow. But he was trying to, I, I would argue that Tarantino was trying to create an atmosphere around really bad people, which every single character in this movie is. They're bad people. They're bad criminals. They're, they're bad human beings. Like they are in most Quentin Tarantino films and escalating that by the fact that, yeah, they're also kind of racist. No question. But being fun, kind of funny about it at the same time is I think where people get very, very uncomfortable. Um, I've seen this movie enough times that it no longer makes me uncomfortable. I was just refresh memoried of like, oh yeah, <laughs> if you showed someone this movie for the first time now, they'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's problematic. <laughs> to it's say highly least, problematic. Uh, this is Tarantino's feature debut. With a great cast, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, uh, Lawrence Tierney, Michael Madsen, uh, Tarantino himself, and Edward Bunker, who's Diamond Thieves, who we see they they have this plan to rob a jewelry store, and it's one of those, like, uh, films that is shown out of time, like sequences back and forth, flashing back, flashing forward. And we know early on the, the heist went terribly wrong. Several of them died largely because one of them went arguably crazy, according to the people who were talking and just started shooting everybody in the store. Uh, it's, you could do this movie as a play. Mm-hmm. It's a one act play. I kind of wanted to see it as a play. Yeah. I would love to see someone do this as a play. It would be neat, right? Yeah. Maybe as a musical? What do you think? Uh, well, I don't know about that, but okay. I do want to see it as well. I want everything to be a musical. I'm like, show a get musical. Your, get on your piano, Chris. <laughs> Start writing some material for it. I'm ready. Let's do it. <laughs> Reservoir Dogs! <sighs> Mr. Pink needs a song about how he doesn't want to be Mr. Pink. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, my God. So many opportunities. Why must I always be the wrong yes. color? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um. This is a deeply funny movie. It's a deeply affecting, dramatic film. It's edge of your seat tension. Um, and it has one of the greatest endings, like really, really, really great ending. Like you're like, Oh fuck. And just Tarantino's use of cutting to black here and, but keeping the audio is like, Oh my God, that's so, so good. I love this movie to death. I, I don't think I'll ever finish watching it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm always like, yeah. it, like a year or two goes by and I'm like, it's time to watch Reservoir Dogs again. I mean, I do prefer Pulp Fiction. Yes. That's my favorite of his films, but this is easily my second favorite. 
Yeah, I like this one a lot. I don't know, ranking-wise. It's also easy for me if I'm in the mood to watch something while I'm working or doing something else. It's so dialogue-heavy, and I know it so well that I can play it and listen, like like a radio play almost. <laughs> yeah. I quote it a lot. It's like, you have those movies that are in your regular rotation of quotes. There's a line from this that's not an obvious one, where the cop goes, Mr., I will shoot you in the face. <laughs> and I say that all the time when the cop is telling the story. Uh, Isn't it funny among you and your friends, you'll, the lines that you'll pick that you repeat to each other are not the big famous yeah. lines. There's some weird off it's line like that. It's, 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 uh, you know, my other one is what say you, Miss Fussy Britches from, uh, from Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> I say that all the time. I love what say you, Miss Fussy Britches? Uh, anyways. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the, the mister, I will shoot you in the face. Um, <laughs> I love Reservoir Dogs. Um, I think that Tarantino is like, when we talk about his use of the N word, I know that was a, that's, that's been, that was a hot button topic back in the nineties. Cause Spike Lee was like, Hey, um, you shouldn't do that. And Samuel Jackson's deal at the time, cause he did Spike Lee movies and Tarantino movies was saying, well, every time we use a word, we take power from that word. So the more that a word is used, the less powerful the word is. Uh, and at the time when I was a younger man and I was in my early twenties and, and less, a less woke white guy, I was probably like, yeah, using words takes power away. Not that I was necessarily peppering my conversation with the N word, but the argument made sense to me in a way that now I'm kind of like, we were all in love with these personalities at the time that we would have bought anything they said. Yeah. I yeah. think now my deal is sort of more. He's like a teenager with an Xbox. I don't think that he's racist, but I don't think he really understands either. And he knows that it it sounds like he can say it, so he does. And I think that's no different than like a 13-year-old using it on, a, on an Xbox. Like, I don't think that deep in their heart they're going to like join the KKK. Yeah. But also they have no perspective on the use of the word whatsoever. And I think that's sort of where, where Tarantino lives with it. Um just to address the the problematic stuff. Hey, I really like this movie. I like all the acting in the movie. I like there's some of my favorite scenes are like the scene with uh with Tim Roth and Harvey Keitel in the back where Harvey Keitel's telling him to hang on and like what is he he keeps telling him to like say you're say you're okay. Yeah. Say you're okay or whatever he's or say you're cool or whatever yeah. he's saying to him. Um and he's trying to get him to repeat after him. I like that stuff. I think Tim Roth as well for a lot of people this felt like the this is like the coming out for a lot of people. You had like Buscemi who had done like these weird quirky New York indie movies that would pop up and stuff every now and then. Or like you see him in like Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. Yeah. But he hadn't, it wasn't like, I feel like this for some reason, star is like the wrong word, but immediately after Reservoir Dogs, everybody knew who they were. Oh, like everybody, yeah. after Mike, everybody Dogs, knew who Michael Madsen was. Yeah, everybody, everybody knew Tim Roth, Roth was. Everybody knew, everybody knew Buscemi. Who Quentin Tarantino was. Yeah, yeah. everybody knew that. I mean, Tarantino. admittedly, of everyone outside of Tarantino, Buscemi was the one who I felt like who this was the point his career went from like, I'm a guy who's in the background of a few things yeah. to I'm a guy who can lead a film. Yeah. You know, like that was a huge step forward. They tried it with Madsen, but the problem is Madsen has one speed. Hey, I'm in a movie with Madsen. <laughs> Are you? Yeah. <laughs> what movie? It's called Corruption.gov. Oh my God. Um, it has one of my favorite set stories, which I saw the, uh, no, I've seen this blooper. No one else has seen it. Nobody's seen this movie. It's like on, they sold like, 
film rights. There's like a German Blu-ray that's like $150 that I'll never own because I'm not spending $150 on like a German blue of this movie. Yeah. There is a scene where Madsen is on an airplane and he's supposed to just be sleeping. I tell this anecdote a lot, but they're filming him and he's got his eyes closed and they're like, they're like action. You know, you're sleeping on the airplane action. He's sitting in his airplane seat. Eyes are closed. And he goes, his eyes are closed for a while and they're filming. And he goes, I'm sleeping. I'm sleeping. (laughs) And they're like, cut. What are you doing? (laughs) Don't talk. Just, just eyes closed. And, and like, act like he's actually saying like they're going to keep that cut. <laughs> so they they call cut and then they're like, okay, go. And they're like, action. They get him again. He's like sleeping. And they're, they're keeping it going. And then he just wakes up and he was like, did you get it? And they were like, cut. Now let's do this again. Like he, they couldn't get what, a what? clean... <laughs> What does it take to tell you to not talk yes. while you're sleeping? They, he also in the in real life. Oh my god! In real life, he got in a bar fight uh, while he was shooting. It's around here. He got in a bar fight and got a black eye. Um, and he plays a politician in the movie. And inexplicably, halfway through the movie, the character just sports a black eye. I don't think there's a reference to it. There's not like a line of dialogue. Like they someone not- should have said, like put makeup on the guy. Um, Oh, they put makeup on him, but it's still and obvious still that he got punched it. in the freaking eye. Oh yeah. My God. Um, yeah. So he has like a black eye for part of the movie. <laughs> Anyways, I'm in it. Lee Majors is in it. Well, did you get to meet Lee Majors? <laughs> I didn't get to meet any of, I didn't get to meet Majors or Madsen or Joe Estevez. Okay. I was brought in in reshoots to make sense of the narrative as a Keith Olbermann type exposition machine that would talk about news events in the movie because it was politically uh, based. Yeah. And so if they needed to explain something to the audience more clearly, they would cut to my character or my character. Someone's watching my character on TV or something yeah. like that. So, yeah. Wow. Um, I'm so never, I'm, I'm probably never going to watch that. So I appreciate your explanation. I'm an exposition it. machine in the movie, but Madsen is famous for appearing in, literally anything that'll yeah. give him a check. Yeah. Um, which is weird because this felt like, oh, Tim Roth went on to much bigger and better places. Everybody went to much bigger. Well, I mean, I th- there was a the guy who died, I think. The, 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 uh, not Lawrence Tierney, who was already Bunker. big, but, um, yeah. Yeah. And Tierney and Bunker were both, they'd both been in and out of jail before. Yeah. He's using like real, like yeah, Bunker, the- I think was a real career criminal who wrote a book about being a criminal. Yeah. Yeah. But he's been, I mean, he's dead now, yeah. I think, but, yeah. um, uh, Chris Penn has also passed away. Chris Penn also passed away, but he also went on to bigger things yeah. after this. Everybody went on to bigger things, except arguably Madsen, who had a few high moments, like he was in an, an, another Tarantino-ish film. Species. Uh, oh my God. <laughs> Maybe the worst of the, uh, well, it's hard to say which is the worst Michael Crichton ad- adaptation. There's so many to choose from, but that's one of them. Yeah. I, 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 think, you, I think you're thinking of Sphere. Oh no! I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. Species. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Species is which is only had one thing to recommend it. Recommend it, which was Michael Madsen. No, no. (laughs) Alfred Molina. No. The hot actress playing the alien. (laughs) The fact you know all these things is disturbing to me. (laughs) 
All right. Anyway, so this 4K disc only um, has bookmarks as its supplement. Oh, uh, man. Are they animated? No. Okay. Um, and But the Blu-ray that comes with it, it's got 12 minutes and 43 seconds of deleted scenes, none of which are necessary. I mean, I've watched them multiple times before in the past. I'm like, there's nothing here that you... I mean, you're watching this movie for the dialogue, and yeah. they're... There's nothing really to add there that's great. Playing it fast and loose, which is the retrospective, uh, with a bunch of talking heads, uh, profiling the reservoir dogs for seven minutes, introductions, uh, and psychobabble analyses to the characters. Honestly, the only reason you're getting this is for the 4K release, and it really does look great. It really does sound great. It's an, if you have a good sound system, a good audio visual system, it's a great upgrade, but, there almost certainly been better releases of this in the past in terms of bonus features. I'm surprised there's not a Criterion release of this, you know, of like a full analysis of this film because it was such a groundbreaking film when it came out. I remember seeing it the Dobie in Austin and it was like, everything has changed. Yeah. <laughs> I got in on the second round. So my friend knew about it, was aware of it. And it was like, Oh, that movie from that guy that worked at a video store that was, uh, he was the hot new thing. And he dragged me to see Pulp Fiction on opening weekend after, uh, when it opened wide after winning the Palm d'Or. Now, now it feels like you should talk about it. Like you're the radio DJ in the movie, Stephen Wright. Hey, it's all the greatest hits of the 90s with Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs starring Michael Madsen, Quentin Tarantino, That's Harvey Keitel. Billy. Also, Harvey really Keitel's big it. comeback, who was yeah. arguably the biggest star in this, who had had a very lapsed period, and then bang. As an 80s kid, I had no awareness of him at all until Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. It hasn't been until post-Reservoir Dogs that it's like, oh, he actually had a career. Like, he was in stuff. And I had I had no idea. He was not a name that I knew until that movie. Yes. I, I was aware of him. I had seen Mean Streets, but wasn't the world's biggest fan of it. I was like, I appreciate more the direct director aspects of this than I do the script aspects or yeah. acting aspects of it. So I was like, yeah, I remember that guy kind of. But this was his like, oh, shit, now I get my big chance and. He certainly had a better opportunity since then. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, we're definitely going to have to do this in two episodes. Uh, so, uh, and maybe we'll record the other one tonight. Maybe we'll record another night. It's up to John Golson ultimately. I'm fine. I'm here. Okay. Uh, but our, we're going to talk about Hinterland, which sadly I think is a directed DVD release. I would love to see this film on Blu-ray, despite the fact that you said that the aspects of this film that are sort of like visual uh, eccentricities are not what you liked. And honestly, that's one of the things I did like. It was like a creepier, like Terry Gilliam's and, and brothers Quay cross, but about post world war two uh, soldiers coming back, but who are German who are like, yeah, we lost. <laughs> and everyone's like, Man, nobody gives a fuck about you. Like, including like the, the, the remaining army. Like, man, what are you, what are you even doing here? Like anymore? Like, go away. And one guy is like, who's the, the sort of head of his group of soldiers is, um, 
very was formerly very respected in his town. He is like the was the head of the head detective in the police, and he was looked at as like almost a Sherlock Holmesy guy. Like, oh yeah. man, this guy was like a prodigy at doing this shit. But nobody remembers him. All those people, except for one who's now the head, are gone. And uh except for as it turns out, one who's a forensic uh scientist who's like, oh yeah, this guy was great. And it, there's a serial killer in town who's only killing war veterans, including some of the people he knew, and he is sort of called back into service because of this. Um, forced back into service. I really, really dug this. It had a sort of like like seven element in the storytelling going on. And like I said, there's a Brothers Quay, Gilliam-ish thing here. Everything is like askew in a weird way. Like all the architecture of this, of German towns uh, from this period is intentionally skewed and twisted where it just looks off. And yes, a lot of it is green screened and that is distracting because it's a cheaper as a cheaper made film, you can tell it's being green screened at points, but I'd like the performances. I liked the story and I liked at least the conceptual design, if not the execution. I think that I was upset that the screenplay was not put into the service of a, a better overall movie. I found kind of upsetting because I do think that what's, I do think the script is sound. It's a good idea for a movie. But none of this really worked for me, probably, budgetarily, how cheap it was. It's heavily influenced by German Expressionism, like the sets and things like that. Or Sky Captain on the World of Tomorrow. Yeah, but it has a look, <laughs> whereas Sky Captain makes a conscious decision to sort of give everything like a washed-out look. This looks... There's... I mean, not to be too technical about it, but if your light sourcing looks wrong, then your scenes look wrong. And there was a lot of stuff where it was like, well, the lighting's all fakakta, so <laughs> everything looks like a video a CD-ROM video game from 1998. It does you know? have that look, kind of. Um, yeah. And none of that was really working for me. And, it, and what bothered me about this the most was that I did think it'd be easier for me to go, oh, like I, it, none of it worked. It was all crap. That would be easier for me to do than like, I really like the script. And the thing that bugs me about this is it's like. But this is the movie that they made with that script. And man, I wish that this would have been like, uh, like, I don't know what the purpose, there was no narrative purpose for them to do all the green screen sets other than to, you know, you'd make the argument, oh, it's to show the war torn atmosphere. But at the same time, everything looks like cartoonish and like twisted. And so it's not really portraying like a real world post-World War II, maybe oh. the decision was, maybe because it was so fakey, they went, well, we can't make it, like, if it did look real, it would be even more bothersome, because then it would, it would, it would get into an area where it doesn't look like an artistic decision. So by making it look a little more cartoony, it's like, well, now it looks much more deliberate and, and like a, like a direction. I mean, I, I just, I just that wish that the be. script was in a better movie. I, l I would love to see this remade. Yeah. I'd like, immediately now like <laughs> See, i i disagree with you man i i like the decisions they made my only problem is they clearly didn't have the money to make it look realistic 
in terms of the quirkiness. Like Gilliam would have been like, no, this has to look like it's there and real. It would have been sex. This looks like yeah. green screen. The design elements that are there where it's also twisted at points, maybe even a little like, like a dark MC Escher. Like it's intentionally supposed to look not real. There's yeah. no question. The unreality is very intentional, uh, from the, regardless of the fact that they have, they're not doing it well and on the uh, production effects side. Um, I was willing to forgive this because it has a sort of, it, there's a certain amount of staginess to this, like a play. And I kind of looked at it more like a play. I could see this being remade as a fuck all that. We're just doing a straight up murder mystery thing like this. It's going to be incredibly intense because the script is really good. The performers are really good and it's a cool as fuck, brutal, very seven ish story. It's a very. It's a very poor decision to have released this on DVD as well. Oh, yeah. Like, like, I don't know. I don't know who in charge decided that that was the only release this was going to get in the States. Like, it, the disc is the same disc, right? Like, yeah. Like, basically, if you're going to get a pressing of discs, they should have done pressings of discs that were Blu-rays. I, I don't know what they benefit by doing DVD pressings of a movie and by whose the- visuals are like, Half the movie are are it's art direction and production design, and then you're releasing it on freaking DVD. By the way, I said World War Two. It's World War One, yeah. not World War Two. My mistake. Um, because the the war where you were not like, well, they're not evil. They just made a mistake. Mm. <laughs> After World War Two, you're like, I have a hard time sympathizing with soldiers who are coming back from the war. World War One, yeah. you're like, okay, well, you know, we've all been there. <laughs> they told me it was going to be a great war. It sucked. <laughs> <laughs> Did they tell that ahead of time? Do they have flyers up? Yeah. Like Xerox flyers? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know why. I, I, The guy who played the lead detective guy I thought was so intense. I'm like, I want to see this guy in other stuff. You know, like, wow. Cast him in the remake. I liked him enough for that. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was really, really strong. Um, there's so much uh, strong stuff in here. Like I said, the most annoying thing was the, the DVD. This should definitely be on a higher quality thing. And the fact that th- they clearly didn't know how to shoot these effects. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought the concept was cool. But I, the more I listen, the more I talk to you, the more I'm like, yeah, I do kind of just want to see a straight version of the script is so strong. It doesn't need those other things. They can, and they can keep it like they can keep it funky. I just don't think they had the budget to, I don't think they had the budget to execute what was in their heads yeah, to the extent fair. that they were trying to. Um, and then again, the package, the overall package, putting something that relies on digital visuals on in 720. P. Yeah. And it's not the greatest looking DVD in the world. Like, no. it's, it's, it looked like an old DVD. And it's, it was sort of like, why am I watching this new movie that's obviously so visual in this, like, compressed, it, like, pixelated format? It feels like the type of movie that nobody had any idea what to do with. And yeah. there should have, there's plenty of people who would have known what to do with it. But it felt like in the company that got it, they're like, I don't know. And just kind of shat it out. We have these movies that come up sometimes on the show that are that are like hidden gem kind of things. I would earmark this for the listeners. I just think it's a matter. I think some of it is a matter of Chris and I just being two different people, and not necessarily the fault of the movie itself. Yeah. Um. So even though I may be more negative than Chris is, I still think it's worth a look because you might like it as much as he does. Yeah. 
Um, and we're going to wrap up this half of the show here. Our next half is going to be largely horror. Uh, we've got a lot of horror stuff to talk about. Some good, some bad, all fun, I would argue, mm. one way or the other. Mm. Yeah, all mm. fun to one degree. Or I, I can't tell. John has got the mm. Mona Lisa face going on here, so I can't tell. Yeah, what is Mona Lisa famous for? You can't tell what she's jailing? No, so she's famous for her... They even made, named a giant movie after tits? it. Yes, no. that movie with Julia Roberts called <laughs> Mona Lisa's Giant Tits. I love that movie. <laughs> so good. <laughs> What's the pick of the week of this show? Oh, what do, uh, uh, Famine. It's not Famine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I had to pick one myself, I'd say it's probably uh, Reservoir Dogs just because you should own Reservoir Dogs. This is a great upgrade. But in terms of bonus features... Well, shit, that's still the best one. I mean, like, there's not much. None of these have really great bonus features this week. So I'm like, I'm going to default to best movie, best visual upgrade and say Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, Casablanca, Reservoir Dogs. I know yeah, I watch way. Reservoir Dogs more. I feel like Casablanca's 4K, though. I mean, I was so mad at the downgrade with the bonus features there. Because Reservoir Dogs has never had a giant great package yeah. of bonus features. Casablanca has. So I'm like... Mm, I feel like there's a new, there's going to be a, a re-release of that. I also don't have long. a giant great package. Um, we know. <laughs> is Reservoir Dogs a Lionsgate release? Um, is it? I think so. I assume so. So let's, I'm going to, I'm going to give Casablanca yes. my pick of the week. And Lionsgate. the reason I'm going to give it my pick of the week is because Lionsgate is going to keep releasing Reservoir Dogs every two years anyways. No, it's true. And, the studios need to know that you will buy their old stuff if they upgrade it to 4K. It's true. So mine is a completely a consumer reports decision <laughs> to put, even though I like Reservoir Dogs more than Casablanca, I'm using Casablanca as my pick of the week because I, I, we need to send a message that we will watch old stuff uh brushed up to 4K. I actually like Casablanca more than Reservoir Dogs, but, you know. That sounds that's like a not, problem. That's not a criticism of Reservoir Dogs. 